chapter 2, the man of lawlessness, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word or mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshiped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who knows, no, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Stand firm, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and work. Thanks so much, Julie. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that your word brings life. And we ask that you would bring life to us now. I ask you that you would not leave me to my own resources or my own ideas, but that your word, your gospel, your grace would shine with transforming clarity for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to uh, speak with you today about standing firm when evil runs rampant. Standing firm when evil runs rampant. The ability to stand firm in the face of evil is an incredibly valuable and desirable quality. When you think of people like uh, Nelson Mandela uh, or Mary Curie or w William Wilberforce or Rosa Parks, so often it was their ability to stand firm in the face of evil that was the key to their effectiveness. We admire judges who stand firm in the fair application of justice. 
We admire parents who stand firm to protect their children. We admire business leaders who stand firm for their employees. And in our reading today, the Apostle Paul commends to us the most important kind of standing firm that we can possibly do. Verse 15. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you. Paul is describing here a God-given rock-like quality that stands firm in following Jesus even when all hell breaks loose. And there's four parts to standing firm that I see in this uh, passage. Firstly, it's uh, clinging to God's word. Secondly, trusting God's timing. Thirdly, uh, it's loving the truth. And fourthly, it's celebrating God's love. So clinging to God's word, trusting God's timing, loving the truth, and celebrating his love. So firstly, um, clinging to God's word. Just listen to verse 15 with me again. It says, so then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings, there it is, we passed on to you. Hold fast to the teachings. Now, just to give you a steer as to what's going on here, this is a church that's um, being uh, suffering and uh, is facing persecution. Christians are being sort of mocked and beaten and in some cases probably uh, killed as they continue to all over the world. And someone has come into the church pretending to have the, the authority of the Apostle Paul. And they've asserted that the day of the Lord, that is the event surrounding the return of Jesus Christ, they are saying the day of the Lord has already come. And this is causing all sorts of problems in the church. And in chapter 3, it's evident that people have actually quit their jobs and are sort of anxiously sitting around trying to see if, if, if this day of the Lord has actually come. Where's this word come from? And so Paul addresses this problem head on. And he says, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled. Now that word, easily unsettled, the Greek word that he uses, it could be put as shaken, shaken out of your mind. It's the same word that's used to describe a ship um, when it's in a storm, buffeted and blown all over the place. Basically the opposite um, of standing firm. And the Thessalonians have lost their anchoring in Paul's teaching, and as a result of that, uh, chaos and disorder has come into the church. And of course, it's no different for us. When our path is not illuminated by God's word, we can reasonably expect all kinds of error, darkness, and mistakes to descend on our lives. And you can just hear Paul's exasperation, can't you, in verse 5 when he says, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you all these things. So when Paul says in verse 15, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, we do that by holding scripture 
and what it teaches in the highest um, possible esteem. Because it's only the light that we get from Scripture that gives us the revelation to distinguish good from evil. That's the origin of the th- what's gone wrong in this church in Thessalonica. And that's why clinging to God's word is the first kind of um, foundational part of standing firm when evil runs rampant. So how does this apply to us? The first way it applies to us, I think, is by shaping our discernment. Anyone can claim the name of God for their ideas. The false teachers in Thessalonica are doing that, aren't they? Uh, quite shamelessly as well. And I've heard the name of God to justify all sorts of things. Uh, greed, uh, one-time adulterous relationships, um, even ethnic cleansing. And an unbelieving world can sort of look at that and say in despair, well, how do we actually cut through the noise then? How can we actually get clarity about God's will if the name of God is so shamelessly abused? Well, we get clarity through the scriptures because God is not silent. He has revealed himself. And we discover God's amazing purpose for our lives in the scriptures. And if you're here and exploring Christianity, I would really encourage you to to read the Bible and to start maybe with one of the gospels. If you want the shortest one, it's the gospel of Mark. Uh, You can just Google it and uh, it's available online and see what you make of it. But maybe for you, you do read the Bible. But if you are honest, you haven't been saturated in the scriptures recently. In the busy Christmas season, season especially, it's easy to let sort of your Bible reading time and a, a quiet time with the Lord to get eaten away. And I would just urge us in advance, uh, don't let it slide. Don't starve yourself spiritually at the time when you probably need God's help the most prioritize time with God's word every day read it pray it sing it get God's word into your bones so that when evil and deception runs rampant like it did in Thessalonica you'll see it and you'll discern it and God will help you to stand firm in it so the first part of standing firm is clinging to God's word. The second part of it is to trust God's timing. So verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day, that is the return of Jesus, will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Paul says here that God has a timing to when Jesus Returns. He says, in effect, that things will get far, far worse before Jesus returns. And weirdly, knowing that is actually good news, or helpful at least, because pre-warned is pre-prepared. When we know that a huge sort of shaking is coming to shake uh, the world and the church, then we can be sort of like a boxer, you know, with a defensive position ready to sort of absorb the incoming punch or like a you know a seasoned army general leveling with his soldiers about the dangers of battle 
it breeds trust, doesn't it, when people respect us enough to level with us about the truth, about what we're actually facing and how to overcome it. And the Apostle Paul does us that favor this morning. So what does this evil look like that's coming to shake the church and the world? It looks like two things. Firstly, it looks like what he calls um, the rebellion. Uh, It's where our word for apostasy comes from. Uh, It means that some people who had an appearance of faith in Christ will, um, in the last days, um, be deceived and fall away from following him. It's quite a sobering point. And secondly, it looks like what he calls the man of lawlessness who will rise up before Jesus returns. There's a lot that we don't know about the man of lawlessness, but there's one thing we can know for absolutely sure, and that is that he will be the epitome of sin and rebellion against God. Wherever the Bible speaks of lawlessness, that's always what it means, sin and rejection of God's ways. Now, there have been various attempts through um, history to try to sort of identify this man of lawlessness. Who is he? Um, Ranging from sort of corrupt Roman empires, uh, emperors, sorry, um, to um, Hitler or Stalin. But however many forerunners there may be in human history to this man of lawlessness, it's clear that Paul has in mind here specific and climactic events at the end of human history. He uses very time-specific language. I don't know if you noticed that. So he he says in verse 3, that day will not come until the rebellion, verse 3. Or verse 6, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. It all gives the impression to me of a kind of specific, climactic events at the end of of human history and it's teaching this that God is in control of human history and that we can trust his timing completely and while the apostle Paul doesn't tell us who this man of lawlessness is he does let us in on what his um, strategy will be Uh, verse 4 it says he will oppose and will um, exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So we can see here that just before Jesus returns, a historical person will arise who will utterly oppose God's purposes. He will be full of kind of self-aggrandizement and self-promotion and self-worship. And he'll have the audacity to claim that he is God. It's giving us, isn't it, a helpful kind of litmus test for evil that whenever we see opposition to God's purposes, self-aggrandizement and self-worship, that we can be absolutely sure that the devil will be in the background of that, energizing it and stirring up resistance to God's rule and reign. And we're told in no uncertain terms that battle will rage, but Jesus will absolutely win the war. There's no doubt about that in this passage. In verse 8, he says, um, the lawless one will be revealed. But then he says, whom the Lord Jesus 
will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So this is more than just comfort to a suffering church, isn't it? This is a kind of impassioned defense of the justice of God. He's saying, yes, evil does and will continue to run rampant. That should not surprise us. But in the end, Satan and his servants will be overthrown and defeated forever. And this isn't sort of blind optimism. God has pledged himself to it in his word. But I think that this needs saying after two years of an exhausting pandemic, a once in a generation uh, cost of living crisis, increasing inequality, wars, uh, the war in Ukraine. And it's easy, isn't it, to sort of wearily look out at the mess the world is in and to sort of say, well, it seems like evil's got the upper hand. And to sort of almost throw our hands up in a kind of despair. But God calls us to not do that. He calls us to stand firm. Because there is a timing to this which God will absolutely bring to pass. So part two of standing firm is trusting God's timing. The third part of standing firm um, is loving the truth loving the truth. So verses 9 to 10, he says, um, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. So there will be the ability to even do miracles. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing, they perish because what? They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Paul teaches that a person's eternal destiny is connected with their relationship to the truth. Now it's evident from verses 12 to 14 that when Paul says um, the truth, he's not talking kind of about uh, truth in a general sense. He's talking about the truth of the gospel. The gospel, if you don't know what that means, is just a summary word um, that the Bible uses to describe uh, the good news of what Jesus has done in dying for us and in rising from the dead. But Paul says it's our relationship to, um, to that specific truth which determines whether we will be saved. And he reasons that only a deep, and lasting and joyful dependence on Jesus Christ will be strong enough to withstand the deception and the false miracles that this man of lawlessness will perform. There will be miracles, but they're not miracles performed in the service of the truth. They're miracles performed in the service of deceit. So as we think about how to stand firm in the face of evil, Paul identifies, I think, a fundamental problem that must be overcome in order for us to even begin to stand firm. And the problem is this, that sin entices and delights human beings more than the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ. 
In verse 12, we know he, he means that because in verse 12 he says, all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have, and here's the contrast to believing the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. He's saying there's this fundamental sickness of the human heart that it delights in and loves wickedness more than Jesus Christ. And until the human heart is miraculously changed by God, then resisting the devil's deception will be impossible. The amazingly good news, I'm sure you're ready for some good news after a reading like that, the amazingly good news is that God does do exactly that. He changes the human heart so that people can and do amazingly love the truth. And it's why Paul breaks out into praise and thanksgiving halfway through the reading in verse 13. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But what is this point about loving the truth saying to us? I think it's saying this, that being a Christian is about so much more than just assent to certain beliefs or doctrines. Now, it's, it's more like being set on fire to, by God to love him above everything. And so if, like me, you feel sort of spiritually cold sometimes, I think this is an invitation for us to ask the Lord and to say, God, please would you wake me up so that I don't just sort of believe in you, but that I am moved to love you. so that I would be enabled to stand firm, because it's only if we love him supremely that we will be able to. And that leads into the final part of standing firm, which is um, celebrating God's love. Celebrating God's love, so, so important. So let's look at it. Verse 13, he says, But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the spirit and through belief in the truth this is such an awesome statement there's so much going on here but having laid out this kind of massive evil the shaking that is going to hit the church and the world the rebellion the man of lawlessness the activity of satan paul then puts right against that god's love for us and it's no contest he confidently celebrates God's love for his people and his logic seems to be that if God has chosen you in love to know and believe in him then absolutely nothing can take that away from you least of all the powers of evil and so he feels duty bound to break out into praise he says we ought always to thank God for you loved by the Lord because God chose you no matter how you became a Christian whether you were six months old or 70 years old Paul is clear that faith in Christ is a miracle which cannot be celebrated too much he speaks of um, a sanctifying work of the spirit through belief in the truth he says, God called you to this through the gospel. It's a remarkable thing. 
to believe in Jesus. And it's no wonder, is it, that in verse 16 he goes on to say that God's love for us is a never-ending source of encouragement. He uses a phrase which I absolutely love in verse 16, eternal encouragement. It's quite a striking phrase, isn't it? God has given us eternal encouragement. If you're sort of uh, wearied by the evil that you see in the world, there is encouragement for you today because as we make a decision to praise God and to celebrate his love, it does have this incredible power to just push back the darkness. If you feel like I do, the coldness of your heart towards God sometimes, and you long to live for him maybe like he wants did and to love him like he wants did, there is encouragement for you today. And friends, don't forget how Jesus stood firm for us and in our place. You know, later in chapter 3, verse 5, Paul goes on to say, may the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and to Christ's perseverance or Christ's steadfastness is how um, another uh, translation puts it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus fell to his knees, sweated drops of blood, and said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will be done. And on the cross, as the powers of darkness assaulted him, Jesus could not be shaken off, could he, from his course to stand firm for us, to die for us. And he did that so that when we sort of feel like our legs are beginning to give way uh, or to buckle, when we worry if we will actually have the strength to kind of stand firm when evil breaks out, he did that so that we could know his love and his encouragement and his wonderful presence strengthening us to stand firm. Let's pray. Father, we know that we can't stand firm without the help of your Holy Spirit. So would you come and give us supernatural help to do that? to stand firm. We ask that you would replace despair with hope, that you would replace weariness with strength. Thank you that you have bought for your people a source of eternal encouragement. God, we praise you for that. And help us to draw on that encouragement this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.